0: Now the next question is from Aaron West, and Aaron asks, can we expect any sundown provisions on bailout legislation as an exit strategy for the government? Are they necessary to keep the government from not backing out after a year or two or, of stabilization? Or will the government take over, uh, develop its own inertia, and never exit this market? Well, I will add first and foremost, the government finds it much easier to start programs than ever to get out of them. But I think what we talked about earlier with the resolution mm-hmm. trust uh, was a pretty good model, it where is. it's a, a defined thing where you accept some of these things, you move through, and then dispose of it in a fairly orderly fashion. And if we stay in that direction, uh, I think this can be fairly short. However if what we've stepped back and see is we've entered a process whereby okay now we're going to have another resolution trust corporation kind of thing and we're going to have one after another after another of these kinds of things going forward we could be into a different problem Mm -hmm. in other words we're gonna have series of crisis to crisis to crisis i mean i can tell you i've seen other people uh... say things about raising concerns about fannie mae and freddie mac government sponsored enterprises uh, for a long time, and it's just now that that crisis has hit and become visible to most of the American public. It becomes a topic of, you know, research at finance and economics seminars, mm-hmm. uh, papers in the professional journals, meetings, and so on. Mm-hmm. Everybody else says, "Oh, it's just ivory tower, you know, folks just talking to each other." Uh, but down here, we think Fannie and Freddie are working really well, extending credit for mortgages yeah. and helping the American family afford a house. Well, you know, sometimes it's not just that. Sometimes it really is problems building that we all have to deal with later. Um, John, Beverly, do you want to add anything to that point, or if I pretty well... uh,
1: No, I agree. I think some of the debate in Congress even today was talking about, at least for part of the liquidation enterprise, whatever they call it, Mm -hmm. having some type of life, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's a two-year life, that's one year that was uh, yeah. bandied around today. So I think they are, in that aspect of it, talking about some finite life for whatever the entity is mm-hmm. that liquidates and all it, these yeah. properties. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Jasmine Saxon, how about letting the shareholders decide the compensation of the executives like Aflac did? it's an interesting proposal. Um, can either of you shed a little more light on what AFLAC did with their shareholders in approving the executive compensation package? Gosh, I don't know any details of that. I think I've just in I general. Think if, if, I think I, I, if I, I saw look. this correctly, and this is subject to correction for all the folks out there, uh, that the AFLAC uh, executive team, particularly the CEO, said, here's my compensation package. You guys can vote it up or down. Oh, okay. and I think if, and this is subject to correction, but I think I remember saying that in fact the shareholders approved that. Now, that's an interesting kind of thing. That's a greater degree of transparency and participation on the part of shareholders uh, than most corporations have. I don't happen to think that would make much of an effect on this kind of problem that we've seen. Publicity-wise, it would be much better, but as a, right. as a material cause of the financial problems we have, I just don't happen to think that executive compensation has got much to do with that. So I don't care what mechanism you use to determine it, I don't think it matters very much. Do either of you mm-hmm. guys disagree with me on that?
2: Well, I mean, there's certainly been some concern from share, um, from um, activist shareholders about the levels of compensation, and that's one way that mm-hmm. AFLAC could address it. But um, again, I don't think that's the major problem with what happened in the credit markets. No. Uh, uh, barring the fact that there were, you know, significant compensation driven by CDOs and credit default swaps, I mean, certainly, but... um,
1: I like to look at to the value they add, and and I know Dan Beverly always heard me say, the day that we can get all of you to come and pay 60 bucks a ticket for me to do a finance lecture in our football stadium, (laughs) and 86,000 of you do that, they're not darn well better be paid what the football coach is paid. I mean, I think that's only fair. Sure. Uh I don't think I'll hold my breath waiting for even six thousand people to <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't not happened for any yet. Of us, right? Maybe we'll have an outpouring of, of a support after this for that. So I, I think, you know, I, I always look to what someone makes relative to the value they add for the shareholders. Um, yeah, just looking down at the at the questions, one comment is if they're being paid too much and you don't like it, can't you sell your shares? Absolutely. And like Beverly mentioned, though, we do have a lot of activist shareholders, like CalPERS, Mm -hmm. the California Public Employees Retirement System, very large, very active. They are large enough as a pension fund to go in and influence corporate policy. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are uh, activists out there. Mm-hmm. Who oh, do absolutely. these things? And try to monitor it and try to change where they think it's excessive. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think executive compensation is a is a a great uh, additional topic, perhaps that we can come back and discuss a little bit. I know right. John, you and I have done some work on that, and I'm, I'm, Beverly and others have have mm-hmm. done some things. So it's a it is a hot topic. It is one about which people care a great deal. Uh, again, I don't think it has too much of a contribution to the current financial problems. Uh, I'm tempted to skip over the second question on the uh, on the monitor right now because it says, "Question for Dr. Gropper: If it were your responsibility to turn this economy around, what kind of actions would you take?" It is, of course, uh, much easier for me to sit here and criticize what other people are doing mm-hmm. uh, than to actually say what I would do instead. Uh, but in part, I think we we do uh, philosophically and practically these questions come together because. Philosophically, I'd say once you start down the the road that says you're going to try to use Federal Reserve monetary policy to actively stabilize the economy, keep inflation low, pay attention to credit markets, being worried about unemployment, uh, housing starts and all the rest. history tells us we get into these kind of problems. Mm -hmm. So you cannot pursue all of those goals with monetary policy. The best goal for monetary policy, in my view, is price stability Mm -hmm. and to try to get out of the short-term modifications that I think lead us to where we are now. Now, does that mean if faced with the practical concerns uh, that people Bernanke and the other members of the Board of Governors and their advisors faced over the last two weeks would I do anything differently I can't say that I would but it's it's rather different to sit here on a stage and talk about it rather than mm-hmm. sit there and say okay trillions of dollars and people working all around the, uh, of the world are dependent on your decisions uh, so in in fairness to those folks I'd say well I'd like to not be in that position in the first place and really have sort of set the thing mm-hmm. where you say nope we are going to uh, pursue a stable monetary policy where we're, we're letting the money supply grow at a, at a rather constant rate and let the credit markets take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. We are so deeply invested with all of those things that mm-hmm. it's hard to sort of back off and say, well, yeah, that's fine, and no, we're just going to keep our, our mm-hmm. eyes focused straight ahead and not mm-hmm. worry about these other kinds of things. Nonetheless, I think it's, uh, it's very difficult when you start doing that and, again, picking winners and losers. So, A, in fairness to the question, I wouldn't try to pick, you know, Bear Stearns, you know, is a winner, Lehman Brothers is a loser, AIG is a winner. Mm -hmm. Try to stay out of that. But you put Beverly in as Chairman of the Fed. I would hire hire Beverly and other people smarter than (laughs) me to go do these jobs. That's absolutely right. (laughs) Uh, Next question. Jim Barth in his Fox News interview, and uh, for those of you who haven't met him, uh, Jim Barth is our louder eminent scholar in finance who uh, splits his time between Auburn University and the Milken Institute. Uh Jim Barth in his Fox News interview mentioned that we let interest rates stay too low for too long. Would higher interest rates be such a bad thing if, as a result, savings earn more interest? Would that not spur more savings contributions in these financial markets? Colleagues? Yes. Higher rates will
1: pull more money in, but again, mm-hmm. if think about it, let's just take a, a bank. You bring mm-hmm. money in, you make your money by lending it at a higher rate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So as you bring more money in though, Will you be able to lend at that higher rate? What are, you, what are you going to do with the funds? You see what we're saying. Mm-hmm. So you have to look at what they can earn, and you know, as a bank, the way you make money is on in your on your interest margin. You have to be making earning more on your loan portfolio than you are paying out on your deposit. Right. So mm-hmm. uh, you have to look at both sides of it. So uh, sure, higher rates would would pull it in. I, and, you know, which does raise a point. You know, now's a tough time to be a retiree on a fixed income.
2: Absolutely, my mother. Yeah.
1: Yeah, because uh, I'm sure everyone out there knows someone. Who may be relying on a certificates of deposit or bond mm-hmm. funds, and you know, their income has gone down pretty dramatically. I suspect over the, the last real years. income, the purchasing yes. power oh, yeah, of those yeah, folks does, is, is, is especially
0: is going down, and it's going to get worse if inflation keeps picking up. That's right. That's so you know, low, right. low rates are good if you're a borrower, but they're bad if you're savers. So. Well, and I think I tend to agree with with, uh, what um, Michael Jones said that that Jim Barth had stated there. And again, that was the point I Mm -hmm. was trying to make earlier when said the Federal Reserve had pushed those interest rates down. And keep in mind, it's not just nominal interest rates. It is real interest rates that matter. And so right now, Mm -hmm. the Federal Reserve is being extraordinarily expansionary with short-term rates because we've got the Fed Fund's target rate, I believe, at 2%. Right. We've got inflation, even just as measured by the core inflation rate, excluding food and fuel, that's higher than that. So we have negative real interest rates, which means the Federal Reserve is supplying about as much credit as it can. Yes. That inevitably leads to inflation. And we've already got inflation building up from one and two percent to three and four and five percent. So I'm afraid that we're going to see more of that down the road. Mm-hmm. Okay? All right. Let's see. uh, Christopher Baker has submitted another question. Ah, and I see Bob Cornelius has successfully got in. So Bob, I'm glad you've been able to join us here too. Uh, But first, from Christopher Baker, given the $700 billion quote bailout and the increases uh, uh, to the debt limit, more than $11 trillion, what do you think will be the impact to the value of the dollar?
2: We saw that today. The uh, dollar had its largest one-day decline against the euro, 2%. Um, again, the expectation is now that there may be another reduction in the U.S. interest rates um, We're already low versus other countries, and so that would put downward pressure on the dollar. The expectation that the dollar was going to go back, and um, I was actually uh, listening to a newscast that was talking about the spike um, in gas prices, uh, oil prices today. We're up um, 15, 16 percent, $22 mm-hmm. a barrel, mm-hmm. somewhere in that range. Um, so again, what's what's happening is when the when the dollar had uh, when gas prices went down, the dollar was actually gaining some strength back up against the euro and the pound. Mm-hmm. We've seen that change again as expectations, uncertainty in the financial markets, expectations that now the Fed may act to uh, print print money um, mm-hmm. or increase the money supply, supply and lower interest liquidity. rates further. Yeah. And again, that, that um, is, is, is an issue for the dollar.
0: Sure. And this causes the, a decline in the value of the dollar because the euro and other world currencies are not being expanded as fast. So their value is rising right. Right. relative to the dollar. And they have right? more
2: room to move their interest rates. They're, they're already higher than ours. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Um, our last question. We'll come up next, but uh, before we do that, I want to thank my colleagues, uh, John Jaher and Beverly Marshall, uh, for being here with us tonight. It's been an interesting experience for uh, for us and, and hopefully a rewarding one for uh, all of our students out there. Uh, Bob Cornelius, who's an EMBA alum, uh, asks... Uh, concerning the new regulation that will come out of this crisis, is there a chance that an overregulation could be protectionist, i.e., similar to how the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act uh, did in the 30s? John? Well, it,
1: there's always a potential for that. Again, my my speculation is we're going to enter at least some period of overregulation. How long that lasts, whether it's three, five, or more years, but both parties seem to be posturing to, to add regulation. But again, it goes back to what do politicians do? They pass laws, create regulations. I mean, that's their job. That's what we send them to Washington. Well, maybe we don't send them to Washington to do, but they think we do. Uh, So I think we can expect uh, with with the posturing both parties have right now is we've got to do something to fix this, and the key is we've got to uh, enact more regulatory oversight. So this could well happen how long it lasts. Hopefully it won 't last too many years, and there 'll be an easing back so that we can get back to these unfettered uh, markets.:
2: Very similar to post enron Yes, you've got to restore investor confidence. Some, mm-hmm. One way of doing that is again to create create more regulation.
0: Financial crisis, government action, and a political season are not a recipe for <laughs> economic success, <laughs> at least not in my view. So hopefully we won't have anything that replicates the disaster that was the, the Hawley-Smoot-Smoot-Hawley Tariff mm-hmm. Act mm-hmm. Uh, that helped turn uh, the recession into the Great Depression, at least contributed to it, uh, back in the 30s. Well, thank you folks very much uh, for being here tonight, and thank you all for joining us. And uh, that's all for tonight here from uh, Auburn University. Thank you. Thank you.